0: Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. And uh, even hearing you sing, and in singing, we are confessing what we believe together in these great hymns and worship songs of the faith. And so uh, I bring you greetings from Christ Fellowship Bible Church in St. Louis, Missouri. Our church family meets in the afternoon, so I am here to serve you, and then I will have to zip back to my church family in the afternoon, and I'll be warmed up by then, And uh, be able to preach the word of God to them this afternoon. It is such a wonderful, wonderful thing to be here. I have prayed for you on many occasions uh, for quite a number of years, as Brian mentioned. Just praying for you, even in your search for a pastor a number of years ago. And how God has been so faithful to provide for you a man to preach the word of God and shepherd you in the word. Just a, a great way for me to be here and see the faithfulness of God even in this particular place. So thank you for for having me with you. Well, for our time in the Word, let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you haven't done so, turn there. Luke 22, and I'm going to preach verses 31 to 34, a sermon that I have entitled, The Hope of Having Jesus Interceding for You in Prayer this is amazing. It is remarkable. This is life-changing. Boys and girls, this is a great portion of God's Word for you to hear today and for you to wrap your minds around and to think about that Jesus is praying for his people. Follow with me as I read Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. This is the word of the true and living God. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Our Father, we pray As I know, many have already prayed that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wonderful things from your law. May it be that we would receive the word this morning, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in us who believe. May the word go forth. Today, with power, and with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. God, that you would use your word to edify and encourage and grow and strengthen your elect children here today who have come to you by faith. And Lord, for those who may not know you, that you would use your word powerfully and sovereignly and effectually to bring them to yourself in salvation, even this very hour. We pray this for the glory of our Savior. Amen. Thomas Cranmer was born in 1489 in the country of England. He attended Cambridge and was ordained as a Roman Catholic priest. But as time went on and as he traveled and he taught and he studied by the matchless mercy of God, God saved him and delivered him out of the Roman Catholic doctrine and into the true gospel. The only gospel of grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Thomas Cranmer was 50 years old and after many years of serving the high rankings in the parliament he came under the rule of Queen Mary I. She came to power and she went right after the protestant preachers and one of them was Thomas Cranmer. In the year 1553 Thomas Cranmer was charged with high treason and he was imprisoned and He spent about two years in prison, and he was subjected to a long and a very tedious and a very arduous trial. One day, Thomas Cranmer was a very weak, a very depressed man, and he knew that his fate was his life, his death, was on the line. He knew that, and with all these trials that came about him, he was convinced that he probably just ought to submit to this Catholic queen, and he ought to deny the Reformation doctrines that he had come to know and love. And sadly, in moments of weakness, Thomas Cranmer said this, I confess, and I believe in one holy Catholic Church. I recognize as the Supreme Head of the Church, the Pope, as the Vicar of Christ, to whom all the faithful are subject. He signed a document affirming that. In that moment of weakness, he denied his Lord. He denied the gospel. He denied the truth that he had come to know and love. But the Catholic Parliament was not even happy with that. Still bloodthirsty, they wanted more punishment for him, and so they ordered that he still go and be burned at the stake after making one more profession of his Roman Catholic faith. Well, on March 21st, 1556, the day finally came that. He was led into a church, and when it was his turn to speak, there were all of these Roman Catholic officials and all these high-ranking officials there on this trial. And he brought a piece of paper which said this, quote, "...I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than any other thing in my life, and it's more than anything else I have ever done in my life." And then he pointed to all the recantations that he had sinfully signed, and all the things that he had sinfully affirmed, and he blurted out, all of these bills which I had signed with my own hand are all untrue. With that, publicly, he denied the Roman Catholic faith. He affirmed his strict allegiance to the true biblical gospel. You can only imagine all the murmurs that went through the crowd at that day with with the public trial that was there. And then Cranmer said this, And as for the Pope, I refuse him because he is Christ's enemy. He is the Antichrist with all of his false doctrine. Well, they went up and they rushed and took Thomas Cranmer and they immediately dragged him from the stage of the courtroom and they took him out to be burned at the stake immediately. The fire was kindled and quickly the flame shot up in the air and Thomas Cranmer, before his whole body was burned, he stretched out his right arm and he put it into the flame and he said, this is the hand that signed the document and sinned. And then as he was praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was burned and he died what boldness for the Lord. What what boldness, what courage, what what a man of God who would have all of these times of doubt and struggle and sin to be sure, and yet what a courageous ending of his life. But I want you to hear this. His faith did not ultimately fail. He did repent He did return to the Lord, even after great sins, and God faithfully preserved him, and his Savior, the Lord Jesus, faithfully interceded for him, and I want you to hear this as we look at Thomas Cranmer, just by way of introduction, and then turn to our text, we need to hear this, that we are not here today preaching that Christians are sinless. We are not here today preaching that sin... Christians are all these super powerful superheroes of the faith. That's not what we're saying. Thomas Cranmer wasn't that kind of a man. But what we are acknowledging is that we have a sinless Savior. And what we do acknowledge is that we have a powerful high priest who right now, at this present moment, as I am speaking to you, we have a high priest who is at this moment praying for all of his people, even in your moment of temptation and sin, even the moments that you are weak and you fail, you have a triumphant high priest who prays for you. Our text today in Luke chapter 22 is, is one of these remarkable passages of the Bible that, that, that teaches these similar lessons as we learn about the difficulties of following Christ, no doubt. We're going to see that today. It is difficult to follow Christ, but at the same time, we learn how Christ faithfully endures with us, and he faithfully intercedes for us, and he is the one who guarantees our salvation. Our text today in Luke chapter 22 is is a conversation between our Lord and the apostle Peter and it goes back to the upper room. It is the last night of our Savior's earthly life. It is Thursday night of the Passion Week. He has already washed the feet of the disciples. He has already had the Passover meal with them, and Jesus is going to be executed the following morning on Friday at nine o'clock. This is a section about coming hardships. It is a section about pending persecutions. It is a section about spiritual warfare, and our Lord is saying to Peter, things are going to get tough. And they're going to get really tough for you. And you need to hear this, that as my follower, as my disciple, Peter, you are going to go through great difficulty in your life. We must remember that in great difficulties and in following Christ, even though Satan opposes you and he opposes me and he opposes us, you need to know that you have a perfect you have a prevailing, and you have a divine high priest who constantly prays for you. Now, in our text today, what I want to do is I want to show you this conversation that our Lord has with the Apostle Peter, and I want to give you two critical lessons. You've got to get this, two critical lessons. As I told my kids this morning around the kitchen table as we were preparing for our time, I said, you can't just get the first point. You've got to listen to both because they're really, really important from the passage that we are going to look at. Two critical lessons that you need to understand in the difficulties of following Christ in your Christian life. Let me just give you the outline, and then we'll work through it as we go through the passage together. The first critical lesson that you need to understand is this. Satan wants to destroy you. You need to hear that. Satan wants to destroy you. And then, but you need to hear the second point as well that we're going to look at. The second critical lesson is this. Jesus constantly intercedes for you. Both are true. And both are found in our passage So let's look, let's just begin with verse 31 in our text with the first critical lesson that we will see in this dialogue between our Lord and the Apostle Peter. The first critical lesson is this, Satan wants to destroy you. Look at verse 31, you see it there in your Bible. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. There's a lot of talk, I suppose, about spiritual things and demons and Satan and the devil in our day. And there's movies and episodes and books and pictures and images all about the devil. But let's focus our attention on what God says in the word of God about the truth of the evil one himself. Satan is real. Satan is alive. Satan has a great desire, and that is to unsettle the disciples. He wants to unsettle believers. Let's just put it in four ways. Just kind of by way of introduction, just kind of forming a little Satanology for a moment. First of all, Satan wants to distract you. He wants to distract you, and maybe we could all acknowledge he's doing quite a good job in our culture. A lot of headlines with a lot of distractions in our day. And yet Satan wants to distract the people of God away from the truth. He wants to distract you. Second of all, Satan wants to discourage you. He wants to discourage you. He knows he can't destroy your faith, but if he can discourage you, that is one of his great tactics. He wants to distract you. He wants to discourage you. Third, oh, he would love to defile you. He would love to defile you. He would love for you to be an unclean vessel. He would love for you to be not useful for the master's use. Fourth, Satan wants to derail you, or maybe deter you, or maybe disturb you. Jesus, in this dialogue, in the upper room, he's with the disciples, And Jesus almost pulls back the veil of the unseen world, of the spiritual world, and it's almost like we we get a glimpse of the unseen, true enemy of our souls. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's called the devil. He's called the ancient serpent. He is Satan. And for emphasis, Jesus, in verse 31, says, Simon, Simon. Listen up. Let me get your attention. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan comes and asks the Lord to sift Peter. Interesting. If you look carefully at verse 31, Satan, 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 Peter, 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 Satan has demanded permission to sift you. See the word you there? That's plural. It's not that Satan just wants to sift Peter. He wants to sift all of the disciples, including you, Christian, and me, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to specifically zoom in on Peter. That's what the Lord is going to do. He's going to talk to Peter, but Satan wants to sift all of God's people like wheat. He wants to sift like wheat, a really interesting Greek verb. It means to tear someone apart. It means to rip something to shreds. It's like if you took a piece of paper and you put it through a shredder, and it just shreds that thing to pieces. You take a a big branch and you put it through the grinder. It It just grinds it. It just shreds that branch. That's what Satan wants to do to you. Satan does not play little boy football. He doesn't play with Nerf guns. He is sneaky. He is wise. He is sly. He is cunning. He is skilled. And Satan is the hypocrite of all hypocrites because he masquerades around as an angel of light saying, come to the rose and grab it and smell it, but he'll never show you that there's a thorn there. He masquerades as an angel of light, but he shows himself to be a a true angel of darkness. He shows himself as a representative of Christ when in reality he is everything but and everything opposite of the beauty and glory of Christ. It's almost like in Job chapters 1 and 2, when Satan was granted access and opportunity to bring great suffering, remember this, into the life of the man Job, and, and even to take away Job's health and his family and his livestock and all of his livelihood. And yet here in our text, it's kind of similar to that. The Lord tells Peter and others that Satan is demanding permission to sift you, to destroy you, to grind you, to Kill you. don't you find it interesting that in our passage notice Satan is mighty but he's not almighty Satan is powerful but he's not omnipotent Satan doesn't have all power to do this he has to come to the Lord to demand permission Satan especially goes after those who are in spiritual leadership. Did you notice that? He goes after Peter. He goes after Simon. The church congregation, just a a word of encouragement. I understand that your shepherd is on a sabbatical for a month. What a great way to apply this particular passage uh, than to call upon the Lord and intercede for your shepherd, for your shepherd elders, for those in leadership. Not recognizing, of course, that they're not perfect. They need God's help. They need God's grace. They need God's protection. And they need protection from the evil one because Satan would love to drag down leaders. He would love to drag down pastors. He would love to destroy fathers and elders and preachers of the gospel. He would love that. Let's not forget the great enemy of our souls. And this relentless dragon that we read about in the word of God, he would love for nothing more than for you, Christian, in the days in which we live, just to be distracted, to spend more time reading the headlines than you do the word of God. More time reading the articles and the blogs and the things online and things that we see and hear and all the fear going around and all the things that are, that are all just swirling around us in our society. And yet for your focus and your heart and your mind to be off of Christ and onto the things of the world, Satan would love that. He would love to distract, he would love to discourage, he would love to defile, he would love to disqualify you and derail your focus. But Christian, hear this, even though Satan is mighty, and in my own human strength, I am no match for him. He could destroy me in a moment. He could run circles around all of us theologically in a moment, and yet, Remember this, Satan cannot destroy you. He can't. But he's after you. And his minions know, Satan knows, and all of his demons know you quite well. They know you quite well. And they know the human heart quite well. And they know your weak spots, and they know where you are prone to temptation. Because Satan and his demons have studied the book of the human heart for thousands of years. And he knows it very well. He's wily, he's cunning, he's hard at work to distract you, he's hard at work to defile you, he's hard at work to disqualify you, and to make you ineffective in your service for the Savior. And our Lord says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, you need to hear this. That Satan has come to me and he has demanded permission to grind you, to defile you, to sift you like wheat. You know, I I, I think, and maybe you would agree with this, that this conversation probably never went very far from Peter's mind and heart. Because many years later, Peter wrote an epistle, the first, we call it 1 Peter chapter 5, and he wrote this, that we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Christian, you and I are living in war. You and I are living in war. We, we, we are in battle. If you're a Christian, you are in the war. You're in the battle. You're a soldier for Christ. And we do well to know our enemy and to know his desires. Satan wants to destroy you. But you know what our text goes on? It doesn't just end there. So if the first lesson for you and I to hear is that Satan wants to destroy you, hang with me. Let me give you another critical lesson. Number two, you got to get this. Jesus constantly intercedes for you. Hear it again. Jesus constantly intercedes for you. Maybe in some of the most comforting words in all of the Gospels right here in verse 32, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Though Satan is coming after all of God's people, Jesus is powerfully praying for all of them. You know, it, it, all of this reminds me, do you remember early in the Revelation that God has given to us in his word back in the book of Exodus. Remember when God was giving... All these instructions through Moses to the people of Israel about building the tabernacle. Remember that, and and how God wanted to dwell among His people, and so God gave all of these instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And then we read in Exodus chapter 28 about the importance of the priests and how the priests are to function, and how, what the priests are to wear, and how they are to to rule, and how they are to intercede, and and we read that in Exodus chapter 28, and. We We find in verse 12 that God says through Moses to the people of Israel, you shall put two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod for the high priest. On the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. And then just a little bit later in Exodus chapter 28, in verse 30, we read that Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breast pieces of judgment over his heart whenever he enters into the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. What is God saying? God is saying, here's what I want the priest to do. Here's what I want the high priest to do. On this breastpiece, on this ephod, I want him to carry the names of the children of Israel. So as it were, he's bringing the people to God by name. That's the duty of the priest. He's bringing the people to God by name. That's what God had for Aaron and for the priests in the Old Testament tabernacle. Well, fast forward with me a little bit to Romans chapter 8. You see, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has concluded this magnificent, magnificent discourse on the depravity of all mankind. Jew and Gentile are all under sin. God in his amazing and matchless and sovereign grace provided his son to be the redeemer, to be the propitiation, to be the one who died in the place of the guilty sinner, So that they can be justified by faith. And then they continue to grow in this beautiful work of sanctification which God accomplishes. And then in chapter 8, this glorious promise of the Spirit's work of sealing and securing that there's no no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Later on in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul in this magnificent discourse, he says this. Reminding the Christians that Christ Jesus is the one who died. Rather, he is the one who was raised, and he is at the right hand of God. And then Paul continues, he is also interceding for us. I love that in Romans 8, verse 34. Or again, the apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have, I love this, An advocate. We have a a mediator. We have a priest. We have someone who, who is our advocate with the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, all of that is what we find in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat But I have prayed for you. In the original language, it's actually much more emphatic than just our English, but I've prayed for you. But but I, I myself, I want you to know, I am praying for you. What comfort. There is in these words. You know, Christians in church history have said, I would not fear all the armies of the world coming against me if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room. How powerful must his prayers be? effectual must his prayers be? How mighty must his prayers be? Let's let's look at verse 32, because I think there's so much comfort here. Christian, in that first heading, that Satan wants to destroy you, that's sobering. I get it. I get it. It, That's hard to hear. We're uncomfortable with that, because we feel weak. We feel vulnerable. But we need to be comforted by the almighty prayers of our glorious savior for us let's talk about the prayers of jesus for a moment just from the text we're going to kind of pull this apart word by word number one i want to show you that jesus prays persistently he prays persistently for you he doesn't stop there's a time when you and i are sleeping there's a time when you and i stop praying and we do other things but not jesus He is persistently, in an ongoing way, constantly praying for you 24-7, never stopping, incessant in his prayers for his people. Can you imagine that? Persistently praying for you. He's praying for you persistently, but second, I want you to know he's praying powerfully for you. Powerfully. I mean, he's praying to the Father. And when he prays, he prevails. He prays powerfully. He comes to God, and he pleads, and he always prays. I mean, get this. Jesus always prays in harmony with the Father's will. He never gets no for an answer. Jesus prays for you persistently. He prays for you powerfully. Third, I want you to hear this. He prays for you personally, personally. You see in verse 32, he said, I have prayed. It's very emphatic. I'm praying for you. It is persistent. It is powerful. But verse 32 is really interesting. Remember earlier I mentioned in verse 31 that Satan wants to sift you, plural, all of you? Now Jesus switches, but I've prayed for you. Singular, individually. He's not just kind of in heaven saying, God bless all of them. He's praying personally for you individually by name in love he has an intimate care for you he he has a a a perfect concern for you every one of his redeemed children he is right now at this moment praying for you individually he's praying for you persistently Powerfully, personally. We could even add one more. For if Jesus is praying for you passionately, passionately, because as He's praying for you, He's praying with all heart, with love, with tenderness for you. You might think, ah, oh, I've had such a terrible week. I wanted to read my Bible starting January 1st, and I'm already off a couple of days. And my prayer time is not what I want it to be at the beginning of the year, and, oh, I missed that opportunity to share the gospel with that person. And you're dwelling on it, and you're dwelling on it, and you're dwelling on it, and you're dwelling on it. And yet your Savior is passionately, lovingly, tenderly, compassionately pleading before the Father on your behalf with great ardent love and desire. But did you know that we actually have a place in the Bible where we hear what the Savior prays for? Turn with me in your Bible just a little bit to the right to John chapter 17. And we call this the high priestly prayer. I suppose it might be called the Lord's Prayer in the truest sense because it is our Lord praying to the Father after he has left the upper room. Jesus is walking south of the old city of Jerusalem and he's heading to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested. But on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops to take a little bit of time alone to pray to his Father. Now, follow with me. Let's just begin in John chapter 17. Let's just begin in verse 1 to kind of get the context here. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so he's going to pray for himself. And then he is going to pray. Let's just pick up in verse 9. He's going to pray for the apostles. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may that they may be one even as we are one verse 12 while i was with them i was keeping them in your name which you have given me and i guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled i mean do you see the 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 intercessory prayers father keep these people Look with me at verse 13. Now he prays for us as well. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have, get this, my joy made full in themselves. Jesus is not just praying for you to have joy, he wants you to have his joy. Perfect joy, boundless joy, divine joy infinite joy he wants that for you and he's praying that for you look at verse 15 i do not ask you to take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one in verse 17 notice his prayer for you and for me sanctify them in the truth your word is truth what a prayer i mean for you and me he's praying this verse 18 and you sent me into the world and I have sent them into the world. And then a little later on in verse 23, what does our Savior say? I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. And then in verse 24, he prays, saying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me me before the foundation of the world and then in verse 26 i have made your name known to them and i will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and i in them do you see that do do, do you see the words of your savior praying This is the high priestly prayer. Praying to the Father. Father, that you would keep these whom you've given me. That that, that my joy would be in them. That's what he prays for. He prays that in the hardship in your life, that you would not be taken out of the world just to escape hardship, but that you would be kept from the evil one while in the world. He prays for you to be sanctified, and how does he sanctify you? By the word of truth. He wants you to be perfected in unity. He wants to remind you, even in his praying, that the Father loves you even as the Father loves the Son. I mean, this is just just over-the-top remarkable. And it would take so many of the troubles that we have in this world And it would put them in proper perspective if we kind of took a step back and said, wait a minute, my Savior is praying for me right now. Whatever that temptation is in your life. Whatever that difficult trial is that God has brought into your life at the present time. Whatever heartache, whatever discouragement, whatever disappointment, whatever might be coming this week that you think, how am I going to do that? The Savior is still praying for you. Back to Luke chapter 22. This is just so remarkable. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. What amazing words. What amazing words. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't that great? You know, sometimes we think, you know, in, in difficulty, boy, if persecution gets really tough, boy, if opposition, if hardship, h- how would I endure to the end if I was brought on trial to be burned at the stake? Would I have the strength to endure? not in and of myself. But we have a praying Savior. We have a praying Savior who in verse 32 said, I've prayed for you, get this, so that your faith may not fail. So that your faith may not fall apart. So that you will not fall away from the glory and the beauty of grace. But. Look at this, end of verse 32, and you, Peter, and you, Peter, when you have turned again, it's the Greek word repent, there's going to be hardship. And you know what? Peter is going to deny his Lord. But when you turn, the Greek word when you repent, when you repent, repent, strengthen your brothers you know I I don't know about you I I just find such encouragement in this because because even disciples like us as we look at Peter with all of his foibles and all of his failures and and the ways that we can say well I can relate to Peter there I'm kind of like Peter there even disciples who fail in moments of weakness didn't God restore Peter and use him in great ways I mean, what mercy and grace of God that even those who fail in moments of weakness, they can experience the success of God's work. Why? Not because they're mighty in their own strength, but because we have a mighty intercessor who in his matchless grace loves to use weak vessels like us. That's just amazing. But look at verse 33. I mean, this is just amazing to me. Okay, so verse 33, but Peter says to the Lord, I mean, maybe a thank you would be nice. You know, thanks for praying for me. No, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go Both to prison and to death. I think, in the context of the gospel and in the context of Peter's life, this might be sort of an impulsive, self confident statement. Almost like a brash assertion. Ha! I'm ready to go with you to to death. I'm ready to suffer. true because in just a few hours he would in fact stand in his own strength and he would in fact deny his lord and the lord was on trial verse 33 the words of peter are a little bit ironic because peter is speaking a little bit of a foreshadowing of his own personal events in his life well number one he is going to go to prison I mean, that's the book of Acts. Acts chapter four, he's in prison. Acts chapter five, he's imprisoned again. Acts 12, he's imprisoned. It's almost like Peter speaking a little bit prophetically of his own life events. And not only am I ready to go to prison, but even to death, which we know from John chapter 21 and Peter's own testimony, Second Peter chapter three. Peter would, in fact, die for his Lord. And for his savior. Now, with with all of this, with all of this, I don't want to just focus on Peter. Did you notice the threefold office of our Savior that is found here? Did, did, Did you see in verse 31, Jesus is the King. Satan had to come. And demand permission from King Jesus. Because Jesus rules over all as the king. Jesus is the king. But did you also notice how he's the priest? Jesus is the priest because he's praying. He's interceding. He's mediating as the advocate. He is the priest. He's a king. He's a priest. And now Jesus is also a prophet. Because what he's going to say in verse 34 at the end of our text is Jesus is going to foretell the future. Look at verse 34. Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. What a Savior! He is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. The fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic hope. What a great Savior. Even though Satan tempts, Christ prays for you. And Satan will be vanquished. He will be destroyed. And Christian, even though you sin, you'll never be finally or ever severed from Jesus Christ. He holds on to you. And though you will stumble... Your prevailing and interceding high priest will keep you, and he will pray you into heaven. He'll pray you into heaven. He he can't lose you. He won't lose you. Because he prays for you. He pleads for you with his own blood before God's judgment throne. I want you to take your Bible and... I want to show you a scripture that is just so amazing. Hebrews chapter 7. Let's go there. This was already referenced in passing earlier. In Hebrews chapter 7, in this wonderful portion of the book of Hebrews where the author is speaking of Christ and his priesthood, in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 25, here's we have this amazing verse. Get this. I want you to see it in your own Bible. Because when sin, when temptation, when discouragement comes your way, here's kind of one of those go-to verses that you can go to. Memorize, you can meditate on it, you can chew on it, you can write it down and put it by your computer. So helpful. Verse 25, therefore he is able also to save forever. He's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession see that so if Jesus is interceding and appearing for us in heaven isn't it fitting for us to appear for him on earth for his glory as his ambassadors as his representatives he is not ashamed to bring us before the Father, congregation of believers, how much more should you and I not be ashamed to bring his name before others in this world? That if, that if Jesus lays out all that he has done for us in heaven, should we also not spend all of our talents and our time and our resources and our abilities for him in this world? Even in times when we fail, even in times when we sin, we receive comfort knowing that the work of our high priest is a constant, compassionate, prevailing work of grace. If Jesus is interceding for us in heaven, hear this. We need to believe that. We need to believe in that intercession while on earth. There are so many who doubt their salvation. Because in those moments, they take their eyes off of Christ and they are turned onto themselves and their performance. And if Jesus is interceding for us in heaven, let's believe in his intercession while we are living on earth. That the Father accepts the Son's sacrifice for you. Believe it yourself as well. Believe it. Triumph in it. Rest in it. Don't doubt your salvation as you cling to the one who died for you and he intercedes for you. If Jesus continually appears for us in heaven and he pleads for us in heaven, then let us love him affectionately while we are on earth. He loves us in heaven. Let's love him while we are on earth. What amazing. What amazing truth. What amazing hope. Christian, this comforts your soul. It quiets your soul. It gives rest to the soul. It gives security to the soul. But here's the point. It's not about you and your performance. It's about the Savior and his righteousness. question today, I suppose, for all of us, boys and girls, men and women, all of us here. Is Jesus praying for you? Are you his? Do you know him? Has he redeemed you? Has he bought you with his own blood? I love how Ephesians puts it, in him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. Colossians adds in chapter 2 that we have forgiveness of all of our trespasses. I'm writing these things to you, little children. And then the Apostle John says in chapter 2, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. What, What a Savior. His blood is the only, only price, the only gift, the only payment that is sufficient and able to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God. And Jesus has paid the full price. He's made a perfect payment. And as we sung earlier, as we prayed earlier, as we have read in the word, you and I can do nothing to add to that. We can do nothing to add to that. And if you're here today and you think, well, I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. I know the right things. I kind of can spit out some right theology from my mouth. But maybe in your heart you're not truly trusting in the righteousness of the Savior. And one of the ways that shows itself is because you keep looking for assurance by looking to yourself and your own performance and all of your good deeds. And that's kind of a constant, ongoing pattern in your life. Look to the Savior. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. God says in Isaiah 45, there is a great atonement, a full atonement, a perfect atonement, a sufficient atonement that has been made once, made at Calvary by God himself. And that blood is enough. That blood is enough. I love Charles Wesley's hymn: him, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty filth fears.
1: The bleeding
0: sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. The Puritan, Thomas Manton, was writing on this doctrine of the intercession of Christ. And Here's what he said, he said, if Christ is praying for you, why is your joy not full? When, when Jesus prayed all these things in John chapter 17, it is, a, it is a copy of his intercessory work for us. So he shows his people, just a little bit before his departure, what he does for us in heaven. He presents his purchase, and he pleads on our behalf in heaven's court. It's a sign that we have a place in his heart, because we have a name in his prayers. Christian, think about this. The union that you have with Christ, the communion that you have with him, standing in grace, and then future glory and endless bliss of beholding the face of God... All these comforts are yours because you have a constant praying intercessor in Jesus your priest for your eternal good. Christian, let your heart let your heart rest in this today. Remind each other of this great truth as you go from here today. Let this ignite gladness and joy and happiness in your hearts in the following of this great Savior. I'll close with, with this. In his writing on the intercession of Christ, the Puritan Thomas Manson went on, after what I just quoted, he went on to say this. The Old Testament high priest entered the Holy of Holies, not only for himself, but for the people having the names of the 12 tribes upon his shoulders. But hear this, Christian. Jesus Christ has entered on behalf of us all, bearing the particular names of every saint graven upon his heart. So, Christian, You owe your standing in grace this very moment to the Savior who is interceding for you this very moment as well. Let's rejoice and worship him. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.